Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, that's the ninth book of the Old Testament. We have been in the book of 1 Samuel for a few weeks, so you should know where it's at by now. If you want to mark it, you're welcome to do so, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. About three or four weeks ago, we started a new series called The Broken King. Uh, we're looking at the life of David, and we're exploring really snapshots of his life. Uh, we said a few weeks ago, we've been kind of saying this every week, is we're not going through David's life exhaustively. Instead, what we're doing is kind of getting glimpses of his life as we travel throughout the book of 1 Samuel and even some of 2 Samuel. Today, I want to begin by having you think about this question. How do you respond when life troubles you? How do you respond when life troubles you? When things in life don't go your way, how do you react? When life throws you a curveball, how do you respond? When your plans are derailed, when you're face to face with inconveniences, when you experience pain, maybe difficulty, maybe disruption, maybe loss, how do you respond? Do you gripe? Do you whine? Do you complain? You know, I've kind of watched my life over the past week and I've learned how much I really do complain. Maybe you can testify too that you're a complainer more often than not in your life as well. I mean, we complain when it's too hot. We complain when it's too cold. Right? We complain when the Braves win. We complain when the Braves lose. Tall people want to be short. Short people want to be tall. Yeah? But it's this endless cycle of complaining. People with curly hair want straight hair. People with straight hair, they want curly hair. Right? How do you respond when life troubles you? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be coming to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And at this moment in David's life, the tension is thick between David and Saul. In fact, things aren't going to get any better anytime soon. Their lives, David's and Saul's, are going in two completely different directions. Saul, because of his arrogance and his pride, is being rejected as king. David, because of his humility and his hunger for God, is being heralded as king. Saul is on a decline. David is on the rise. The favor of God is extremely evident in David's life. When you start to read chapter 16 and chapter 17 and here in chapter 18, you can see that God is blessing David through and through. That David is walking in complete harmony with the Lord. Well, this would eventually lead to, to David being anointed as king. We talked about that even last week. So at this point in the text, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, Israel is in love with David. But Saul is disgusted by 
David. In fact, David has gone from being Saul's favorite assistant to now becoming Saul's greatest threat. And might I add, he is now Saul's greatest enemy. Fear is growing in the heart of Saul as he watches his own fame and his own popularity begin to dissipate. David's fame in Israel is growing more and more each day. In fact, every step forward for David is a step backward for King Saul. And each attempt Saul makes to crush David's popularity, all he does is actually enhance it. There are two verses, really, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that explain the entire context. The first verse is verse 12. The second verse is verse 16. Verse 12 says this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. So King Saul is now afraid of David because he sees that the evidence of God's hand is all over David's life. And it says, but that same hand had departed from Saul. Verse 16 says this, but all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before him. So the text is clear. Saul is growing bitter. Saul is growing jealous. And he's trying to think of any vicious act that he can to put an end to David's life. That's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So with Saul having this idea in his head, what can I do to end David's life so that I might gain popularity and prestige and fame again? What might I do? Here's the plan he comes up with. We're gonna pick up in verse 17 where it says this. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merab. I give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. That's the plan. Saul's plan to get rid of his problem, namely David, is to marry his problem with his daughter. That sounds like an atrocious plan. Like, that sounds hideous, doesn't it? Why would anybody, why would any dad think that that is smart? That in order to get rid of this dude, I should marry him to my daughter. The only request here that Saul makes is that David will have to go to battle and fight for him. So let's continue to read. The narrator says, for Saul thought, the narrator is letting you into the mind of what Saul was really thinking here. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So what you're being exposed to here by the author is the author is letting you know the motives behind the heart of King Saul. King Saul wants David to marry his daughter so that he might go to war with him or for him, and when he goes to war for him, he might die at the hand of the Philistines. The motive and the thought is that David, if he goes to battle with the Philistines, he will surely be killed. So how does David respond to this? Verse 18. It says, and David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives that my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Again, you're getting a picture, a window into the heart of King David. You're seeing that he is a man full of humility. He says, who am I and who is my family? If you know where we come from, we don't deserve to be connected to the king. We don't be, deserve to be the son-in-law, or I don't, the son-in-law to the king. This is David's way of saying, wow, 
You mean to tell me that I could be the king's son-in-law? And then the story begins to take a turn. It says, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel for a wife. You see what Dave, or Saul just did? Put yourself in his shoes. The wedding day comes. David as the groom, with all of his grooming, get, groomsmen, gets ready. He puts on his tux. They put on their tux. They take their pictures. They pray over him. He's getting ready to go take his wife. Meanwhile, Merab, she's getting decked out, decored and decorated too, right? She's getting ready for the greatest day of her life. Her and all of her bridesmaids, they get dressed, they take pictures, and she gets ready to go present herself before her groom. Here we are on the wedding day. People are starting to come into the church. The church is now full. The groomsmen make their way down. They're now in position. The groom is down there with them. The bridesmaids wait, make their way down the aisle. At the very tail end is the flower girl coming and passing out all the flowers. The doors shut. The wedding bells come on. The doors open again. And there is King Saul standing with his daughter Merab, walking her all the way down the aisle. And the officiant of the wedding says, Who gives this woman to marry this man? And it's at that moment that King Saul pulls the greatest stunt in human history. He says, well, not I. In fact, I want to give her to marry another man. And that's exactly what's going on here in the text. King Saul is playing games with David. He is playing with David's heart. Saul realizes that one of his other daughters, meanwhile, her name is Michael, she loves David. And he starts to think, okay, so maybe I can marry him off to please my daughter. I want her to be happy. She loves him. So maybe what I could do is marry him off to marry her instead of Merab. That's where we pick up in verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. There's the motive. That's the point. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Again, church family, you have to understand the goal for King Saul is that David would die. That's what he wants. He wants David to be dealt with and he wants David to be done. So Saul looks at David and he says, you are free to marry my other daughter, Michael. She loves you, but all I ask is that you go and kill 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins. Verse 25. The king desired no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. So again, King Saul says, that's all you have to do. If you want her to be your bride, I will give you that blessing. All you need to do is go kill a hundred Philistines and bring back their foreskins. Can you imagine that? Well, don't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> don't. It's very painful to think of that. But this is a descriptive request. In fact, it's a very specific request. Why is it so specific? Because King Saul doesn't trust David. King Saul thinks, hey, if I tell you to go out there and kill 100 men, you might just kill anybody and bring them back, and I'm just supposed to assume that they're all Philistines. 
Instead, he's saying, no, I want you to go kill 100 Philistines, and I want you to bring back the foreskin so that I can know if they're circumcised or not. And that will validate and affirm that these are indeed Philistines. But again, what does David do? Look at verse 27. David arose and went along with his men. And what did David do? He killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins. So instead of honoring the request of bring 100, he doubled down, and he brought 200. So when David was trying to impress his father-in-law, he actually did just the opposite. He intensified the anger and resentment of his father-in-law against him, or his future father-in-law against him. In fact, the Bible says in verse 29 that Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. That means that Saul became David's enemy forever. There will never be a day where they are no longer enemies. All David was hoping to do is maybe impress his father-in-law, but instead what you see here is that he actually heightened David's intensity or Saul's intensity against him. Well, if you continue to read this story, you'll go on into chapter 19. And what you'll find out in chapter 19 is that David ends up having to leave his young bride. And he'll have to flee into exile. Now for just a moment, church family, I want you to imagine what it must be like to be in David's shoes. David is a newlywed. David wants to enjoy this first few months, these first years of life and marriage with his new wife. But instead of being able to enjoy the first year of his marriage with his new wife, what does he have to do? He has to leave his wife and he has to flee for his own life. Because why? Because his new wife's daddy, he wants David dead. He wants to kill him. So if you could, at the best way possible, I want you to step into the story for just a second this morning. I mean, it's the unthinkable. It's unimaginable to think of what this must be like. At this moment, we can't forget one minor, yet maybe one major detail of the story. David has already been anointed as king. And because of such, the favor of God and the blessing of God and the hand of God, it is on David's life. It's not David picking and choosing what life is going to look like and what his plans are going to be. It is the hands of God governing and guiding David's life. He has already been anointed king. The blessing of God is all over him. Up to this point, he has seen tremendous success. Full circle here. Why would God allow this kind of trouble in David's life. I mean, why would God allow David's heart to be played with? How cruel does God have to be to allow his son that's been so faithful and so humble to serve him to walk through this? Why would a good and a loving God bring this kind of trouble into the life of his child? Isn't this God that David has been serving, isn't he a God of love? Isn't he a God of grace? Isn't he a God of compassion? Have you been there? Have you asked that question? 
Has there been a circumstance in your life where you looked at the face of God and you thought too, how can a loving God dare do such a thing to me? How do you respond when life troubles you? When things don't go your way, how do you react? Do you shake your fist in the face of God, daring him or threatening him to do what you want him to do? Or do you trust that God is good and God is loving and that God does know best and he is all powerful and he is all wise and whatever he says must go? How do you respond when life troubles you? You know, to answer this question, you really have to know how to study your Bible. See, there are times when you study your Bible that you have to zoom in. And there's other times when you study your Bible, you have to zoom out. These are just my words, just trying to put it in the best, most simplistic way possible, okay? Zoom in, what does that mean? It means you are reading a text of scripture such as this one. And zooming in means that you start to exegete and break down every single word in that verse so that you can get a fuller comprehension of what that text is trying to say. That doesn't mean that you strip it from its context. You keep it in its context. You're just breaking down exhaustively that text. It's called an exegesis. You're letting the text talk. You're letting the text speak for itself. That's zoom in. But there's other times in scripture where you're reading it and you study it, you have to zoom out. That means you see how this particular verse fits within the larger context of scripture. Your entire Bible from beginning of end is one story. You fit somewhere within that story. And, and when you discover that reality, that God is on a mission to redeem humanity back to himself, and all of this just fits within that over, overwhelming umbrella-like vision of what God's wanting to do, you can zoom out and start to understand a little bit better about what the text you're actually reading means. And what I mean by that is you see how God responds in different scenarios, different circumstances, different situations. How did this person respond when they experienced pain? How did that person respond when they experienced loss? When this circumstance entered that person's life, what was it that brought them through? Like you start to see how the people of God, the characters of God, respond to God so that you can know what God expects out of you. So you zoom out. And we're going to take the zoom out approach to our text today so that you and I can see how we ought to respond to life's troubles. Listen, if you're not walking through pain, difficulty, loss, an unbelievable, unthinkable circumstance in your life today, you might tomorrow, and you're going to need this. Most of you in this room, if you have not already walked through something significant that you could not control, if the plans of your life were not already derailed, they're going to be. At some point, you can rest assured that that's going to happen. Things will not go according to our plans all the time. So I want to equip you and prepare you today for how you're to respond to that. So we're going to zoom out and we're going to answer the question, how should we respond to God in times of trouble? The first thing I want you to see is this. In times of trouble, you can run to God. In times of trouble, you can run to God. Ma'am, sir, you lost your job. You can run to God. Ma'am, sir, you lost your child. You can run to God. Child, you lost your parent. You can run to 
God, the temptation that all of us face is that we run away from God, not necessarily to him in the face of difficulty and trouble. But God is a God who says, and in fact, he invites you when difficulty comes, when trouble comes, to not run away from him, but instead to run to him. You can run to God. The Bible paints a very vivid picture of a God who longs for us to run toward him, not away from him. So ma'am, sir, if you walked into this room today and you were hurting, and in fact you doubt the nearness of God to you today, you can cling, zoom out, you can cling to Psalm 34 where it tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you came in here today and you're walking through a difficult circumstance, you're walking through a time of trouble, and you're wondering, is there really a place of shelter for you? I mean, is there anywhere that you can go to find safety in the midst of your chaos? The Bible says in Psalm chapter 9, verse 9, that the Lord is a refuge for the persecuted. He is a refuge, a safe place in times of trouble. If you come in here today, and you're trying to figure out how to navigate through the circumstances of your life that you did not necessarily set up for yourself. For yourself. If you have this thought in your mind, you know what, I've already crossed the threshold. I am way far too gone. The psalmist says in 103, he redeems your life from the pit. There is nowhere deeper than the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. If you came in here today and you feel like your troubles have flipped your life upside down and you are questioning God's goodness and you are questioning, does God have any desire at all to be a blessing to me? The psalmist says in Psalm 149, for Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He takes pleasure in you, ma'am. Or, yeah, you, ma'am. He takes pleasure in you, sir. He adorns the humble, the Bible says, with salvation, when you are tempted to forget all the incredibly good things that God has done for you. And by the way, when troubling times come, you will be tempted to forget all the incredible things that are good that God has done for you. You'll resort to what? Complaining and griping and whining. You'll resort to the negative. You'll start to think, man, God, you're supposed to be good, but this doesn't look good to me. If you've ever been tempted with that, Psalm 116, return to your rest, he says. My soul, for the Lord has indeed been good to you. When you think that you are walking through a troubling time, and because you're walking through this, something has got to change. And you start to, you start to come to this solution that maybe nothing will ever change. The Bible says in Psalm 145, all eyes look to you and you have given them their food at the proper time. He will feed you at the proper time. He will redeem you at the proper time. He will free you at the proper time. He will let you go from that at the proper time. When your strength and understanding are unbearably weak and limited, the Bible says in Psalm 147, our Lord is great. He alone is vast in power. His understanding is infinite. If you feel like what you're walking through, nobody in this world will ever understand you, you can rest assured that the, that, the, that the mind of God understands, the heart of God feels, the person of God responds, and he calls you to run to him. 
When you doubt his care for your longings, the Bible says, take delight in the Lord, for he will give you the desires of your heart. It says in Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my portion, my heart, my portion forever. When you doubt his power or delight to save you, he rescued me from the powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. When you're afraid that you have that you have crossed the threshold of the ability to be forgiven. That if God knows your sins, and he does, he won't forgive you because you've committed too many. <laughs> Psalm 20, Psalm 32. Then I confess my sins to you, O God. I did not conceal my wrongdoings. I decided to confess them to you. And what did God do with that? He forgave how many of my sins? All my sins. That's the God that you serve, church family. The Bible teaches us that we serve a God who is a refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Sir, ma'am, I'm not sure what you're walking through. I have troubling times of my own. But here's what I do know. And I continue to learn this lesson every single day more and more. I can run to God. I don't have to run away from him. In fact, sometimes he brings these things in my life so that I will run to him. And he shows me I'm the only one, Trey, who can do anything about what you're walking through. You don't have the competency. You don't have the capacity to be able to handle this that's going on in your life. You're going to need me to get you through it. And what better place to be than sitting safely and resting safely in the arms of God while walking through difficulty. In times of trouble, you can and you should run to God. I have no clue what's plaguing you today. I don't know what plan you had for your life that has been derailed. I don't know what sadness and what sorrow, what suffering you might be walking through. But right where you're at this morning, you have a God who wants you to run to him. So in times of trouble, we can run to God. Secondly, this morning, in times of trouble, we can trust in God's sovereignty. In times of trouble, you and I, we can trust in God's sovereignty. Let me explain to you what this means, okay? It means when troubling times come, you can anchor the roots of your life into the character of God. The God that you and I serve, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You understand that? He's constant. He doesn't change. You can draw from his faithfulness of the past and trust that he's going to be faithful today and in the future because that's who he is. His character doesn't change. Part of his character is that he is a sovereign God. What does that mean? It means that you and I begin to trust that he is in absolute and complete control. He's in absolute and complete control. It, it, it means that you and I don't live in a world of luck. You and I don't live in a world of happenstance or of chance. We live in a world that is under the careful control of a good and a gracious and a loving and a holy king. That's the world you and I live in. That we have a God who delights in us, a God who loves us, and a God who governs the world the way that he wishes See, God's sovereignty means that there isn't anything that will ever enter your life that God does not decree or allow. 
It means what happens only happens because he allows it to happen. What are we talking about today, though, church? We're talking about sorrow. We're talking about troubles. We're talking about inconveniences. We're talking about things that derail our plan for our lives. And what the Bible is telling us when we tap into the sovereignty of God is that no matter what inconveniences life throws at you and no matter how much your life may seem out of control, you and I can rest assured that God is still in control because he's sovereign and he hasn't changed. Listen, if you can tap into this truth, it will transform the way that you live. It will. And and you're not going to get it overnight. It's going to be something that you have to continue to revisit over and over and over again. I'm having to do that within my own life as well. Trusting him begins to replace the gripes and complaints that we tend to offer him. When we know that he's sovereign. So in troubling times, we can trust in the sovereignty of God. Are you trusting that this morning? Third, in times of trouble, remember, God has a zeal for his own glory. In times of trouble, we have to remember that God has a zeal for his own glory. You know, there's times in the life of a pastor that you want to say things that really make people feel good. Because you think that if they leave and they feel good, like Tracy's doing right now, I'm just kidding. Um, But if they leave and they feel good, she's going to kill me for that. Um, But if they leave and they feel good, what will happen? Well, they'll go tell somebody about it. They'll talk about it. But, But if they leave and they don't feel good, yeah, they might not come back. This is going to be risky, but I want to tell you something today that might not make you feel very good. You're not the center of your own universe. Um, God is. You see your life through your own lens, and that's why your emotions are so tied to your own individual life. When in reality, God is working things out in a way that you and I don't have the strength or capacity to understand. I was sharing this with my wife the other day, and and it kind of makes sense to me, so hopefully it'll make sense to you. But do you know the difference between a coach who stands on the sidelines and a coach who's in the box? Tanner, what's the difference? The the, the guy in the box can see the whole field, right? Yeah, the, the guy in the box can see the whole field. And sometimes on the sideline, you can't see everything the way it's working. And we have to trust that God sees the whole field. That, that he sees exactly what needs to be done to get you to where he wants you, but also to get the glory that he so rightly deserves. We have to understand that the God that you and I serve, he is zealous for his own glory. He is 100% interested in your good. I get that. But he is also even more interested in the fact that he gets glory. Think of Isaiah 48. Listen to these words in verse 9. It says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. This is God. I'm restraining my anger for the sake of my own praise. That I may cut, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Some of you, you felt that. 
You felt that. You felt like you've been refined in the furnace of affliction. But watch, why'd he do it? For my own sake. If you didn't get it the first time, he put it in there a second time. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen, church family. Listen, listen, listen. Jesus tried to say this to the disciples, and he even said it to us, but for some strange reason, we tend to bury this beyond the borders of our imaginations. I don't know why we do this, but here's the truth of the reality. Jesus told us. He told you. He told the disciples. In this world, you will have troubles. You will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That what you see and experience now is not how this ends. There comes a day when there is no more grief to bear. There comes a day where you and I bask in the presence of the glory of God and there is not gonna be a tear that goes down our face because we will be with him forever. No sickness, no sadness, no trouble, no planned derailment, nothing but singing praises to the glory of our great God. So in times of trouble, we must remember that God has a zeal for his own glory. And then finally this morning, in times of trouble, know that rest is not found in your own understanding. Rest is found in trusting the Lord. I'll say that one more time. In times of trouble, know that rest is not found in your own understanding. Rest is found in trusting the Lord. See, the natural response of pain, the natural response of trouble, the natural response of inconveniences, the natural response of loss and sorrow and sadness, the, the natural response when things don't go our way, the natural response of our plans for our life being derailed is what? is to start relying on our own understanding of that problem, that pain, that loss, that inconvenience. It's how we see it. Let me say it like this. You will not find rest if you turn inward. You will only find rest if you look upward. You will only find rest when you look to God in the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the heartache and the grief the trouble and the inconveniences that you walk through. We will never understand the mind and the will of God. You and I here on this earth, we can't do that. Rest is found not in trying to figure out his will. Rest is found in simply submitting to it and just saying, God, I, I don't know the best way to craft and to shape and the mold tray into the image of your son. You know the best way to do that. My job is to trust that you are indeed doing that. And with every passing day, no matter what you bring, if it's good or if it's bad, I can trust that you're making me more like you. I can trust that you're chiseling away some areas that might not be necessary in my life. I can trust that you're bringing in some things that you think are necessary for me. Whatever the case may be, I can submit and surrender the entirety of my life over to you and trust that you're gonna do rightly with it. So we say, I don't understand but even though I don't understand this trouble, even though I don't understand this sorrow, even, even though I don't understand this pain, I do know this. 
I do know that he loves me. I do know that he cares about me. I do know that he's a God that is full of infinite wisdom. And I do know that he is a God who is good. And because of that, I will find rest. It's called the peace that surpasses all understanding. And ma'am, sir, some of you, you came here today and you're walking through some pain. You're walking through a troubling time. And the reason the confusion and the chaos exists in your life is really because you don't have the peace that surpasses all understanding in your life. When you lack Jesus, you lack rest. When you lack Jesus, you lack peace. When you have no infinite infinite relationship with the King of Kings and the master of the universe, the one who's controlling everything according to his own plan, your life begins to get a little cluttered, a little chaotic, and a little out of control. For you today, you need to turn to Jesus. You need to turn to him because he's the only one who can anchor you in the midst of your trouble. He's the only one who can provide for you the peace that you are currently lacking. The proverb said it best, Solomon did, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And that's where we end. How many of you know that verse or those verses? How many of you know verse seven? Not a lot. Listen to verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and it will be refreshment to your bones. What is this verse doing? The intents of Proverbs chapter three, verses, or verses five through eight are this. It's to direct your affections Godward. If you turn inward, you won't find rest. But if you look upward, you most certainly will. Now church, when you look to God, that does not necessarily mean that your troubles will all be gone. They won't. I wish I could stand before you today to say all you have to do is turn to God in prayer and immediately your troubles will dissipate, disappear and be gone. It's just simply not true. It simply means we have faith in his goodness. It means we have faith in his wisdom. It means we have faith in his ways and we have faith in his ability to work all things together for the good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purposes we begin to trust, God, I don't know why you put this trouble in my life. I don't know why you brought this pain. I don't know why you brought this sorrow. I don't know why you brought this sadness. I don't know why you let me lose my job. I don't know why you let me lose that child. I don't know why you let me walk through this pain, but it certainly has wrecked my life. But I do know this, that I have a God that's good and I can turn to you and trust you. And it doesn't make sense now, but one day, maybe not here on this earth, but certainly in heaven, it'll all make sense. But what I'm to do now is to live my life in a way that points the attention of man and woman, child, boy and girl alike, to see the goodness and the glory of God, even in the midst of my trouble and pain. So where do you turn? How do you respond in troubling times? Do you run to God? Do you run away from God? Do you trust in his sovereignty? 
or do you begin to think maybe he's not as smart as you thought? Do you know that he's doing everything that he's doing for his zeal, for his own glory? Do you rest? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that's where it starts. You have to get to know him first. And maybe you are here and you do know Christ. And quite frankly, you're learning today how to deal with troubling times. We don't do this a lot here, but I wanna do it today. This is an altar. This is a place for you to pray. This is a place for you to take the things that are weighing you down, the burdens that are too big for even you to bear, and you just come and lay it down and cry out to God and say, God, help me run to you. Help me trust that you are indeed sovereign. Help me trust that this trouble that's in my life, you're doing it for your own glory and help me rest in that reality.